Hello and welcome to the Radical News Radio Hour with Serene Saade. You're listening to WFNU, LP, St. Paul, Frogtown, Community Radio, 94.1 FM. For those of you who are curious, this show has moved from Thursdays at 11.30 a.m. and will now air twice a week on Tuesdays and Fridays from 1 p.m. to 2 p.m. We have a big episode today. We'll start with an interview with Sophia, a youth climate activist and a young woman whose last name has been withheld as she's a minor. We'll also speak with Clark Goldenrod, a budget expert with the Minnesota Budget Project, as well as Julia Freeman, the Director of Community Engagement with Voices for Racial Justice. Just a reminder that the views expressed in this program are not representative of WFNU. We'll start today with Sophia, a youth climate activist who recently participated in a youth-organized climate justice summit held on February 24th. Apologies for some of the limited rough audio in this episode. Hi, Sophia. Welcome to the Radical News Radio Hour. How are you doing today? Hello. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm doing well today. Good. I am glad. It is Really great to have you on talking about um, climate and environmental justice. Um, first of all, why don't we start with some background? Um, who are you and what kind of work do you do? I am Sophia and I'm a member of Youth Environmental Activists um, Network, which is a part of the parent organization Climate Generation. So we call ourselves YEA or YEAH for short. And, um, we just do a variety. We're a group of uh, youth um, from different parts of Minnesota and um, from a lot of different backgrounds, and we um, do work to combat the climate crisis. Wonderful. Um, so we're talking right now because of the summit that's coming up. Can you tell me first, though, a little bit about the organizing work that you do? Um, what kind of um, what kind of organizing are doing? What kind of activism? What what does that work with young people look like, especially in this socially distant era? Yeah, well, the summit actually um, happened already recently, but um, it was really um, a great experience to plan it, and I'm lucky that I got to do that. Um, I definitely learned a lot of. Um, skills from it, like communication skills um, and social skills. Um, so um, the way we planned it, we sort of collaborated um, with the adults in climate generation. And so we, we started off with the logistics, like picking a date and time. Um, and this is the first one that's been virtual. It's an annual event, um, but we usually have it in person at the Capitol. And this is the first one that was virtual. Um, so it was um, really unique and new, and it did present um, some new challenges, but we just used those challenges as opportunities to learn more. Um, so yeah, after we figured out the logistics, um, we got legislators to come in to 
the event to listen to us, and we got um, different people and groups to um, lead virtual workshops. Um, and yeah, and then we had the event, and it went pretty well. So wonderful. So climate and environmental justice. Let's speak for a moment about that. You talked about in the pre-interview you wanting to use your time at home to help the world, to help somebody, to help to change the world. Why does that pause call to you? And why is it so important that we pay attention to climate and environmental justice right now? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, it calls to me because it's such a crucial issue and it will affect my future as a young person so much and um, future generations. Um, like, if I decide to have kids someday, like, I want to bring them into a world that's safe and healthy and just. Um, and so it's really important that we take care of our planet because um, I think we all, at the end of the day, just want to live in a healthy environment. Um, and the other reason is nature. Um, I grew up going to parks a lot. Um, I can thank my mom for that. She um, took me to a lot of places in nature and just spending time out there um, feeling peaceful made me really care about nature and wanting to protect it and wanting other people to have the experiences in nature that I did. Um, and I, um, why, why environmental justice is especially important right now, um, I would say because we are living in a pandemic, it, um, it's very tempting to just put aside um, these is the issue but um, because we're already dealing with so many other things that I think we should really resist that temptation because um, climate change is still happening um, and we can't just ignore it because there are other things happening too. And um, there's also um, obviously a lot of racism happening in our society right now and that relates to the climate crisis as well because um, the climate crisis um, affects um, minorities like the BIPOC community and people with lower incomes. It affects those communities the most because on average they don't, um, they have less resources to be able to deal with the effects. And so that's why it's especially important right now um, in a time with so much racism to um, make sure we are working to help people deal with the effects of the climate crisis that really need it. Um, yeah. I think that analysis is one that a lot of adults have not even come to understand that the environmental and climate justice is not just environmental and climate justice, it's also racial justice, it's um, justice for people from different economic backgrounds. So I think that analysis is actually really powerful 
and something that we need to spend more time, I think, thinking about because clearly there's a lot of work to be done if, you know, these discussions keep happening, but there's some organizing and mobilizing that definitely needs to happen. Yeah, I agree. Like, it's important to see how all of these systems interconnect. And um, I think one way to do that is education because I was never taught in school about, like, environmental justice and the different systems. I mostly learned that through youth environmental activists. And um, yeah, I guess that's why we um, wrote our our climate justice bill, because um, mm-hmm. that's really important. Well, that that's really wonderful. I'm just so glad to know that you, you, you young people are on it, just taking, taking the lead and building power here. And I had the chance to interview some of your uh, co-organizers last year in person because it was right before COVID and um, I just uh, remain amazed with them and with you just with that depth of analysis, that commitment, um, that sense of ownership for the future. Um, that's really powerful. It gives me a little, quite a bit of hope. Well, I'm glad. Good. All right. Well, anything else you'd like to share before I let you go for today? You should support our bill, I guess. Um, so mm-hmm. it's it's called the Climate Justice Education Bill, SF666HF550. Uh, um, so, yeah, if you're interested, you can look it up and email your legislators. Um, that's all I think I have to add. Thank you for speaking with me. Thank you. And we'll make sure that links to the bill with more information are included um, on this uh, show where you can find it online. So thank you so much for joining me. I'm grateful we had the opportunity to speak. Yep, me too. All right, we'll be in touch. Yep. Thanks to Sophia for joining us for that pre-recorded segment. Up next, we have Clark Goldenrod, Deputy Director of the Minnesota Budget Project at the Minnesota Council of Nonprofits. Clark will be discussing the budget and its racial justice implications. Hi, Clark. Welcome to the Radical News Radio Hour. How are you doing today? I'm I'm doing okay. How are you? I'm doing all right. Glad to be able to speak with you about the budget today. Um, so first of all, why don't we start with introductions? Uh, so my name is Clark Goldenrod. I use her pronouns. I'm the Deputy Director at the Minnesota Budget Project, um, and we are an initiative of the Minnesota Council on Profits. We identify and promote public policies um, so that economic security is available to all Minnesotans, you know, regardless of who they are or where they live. Wonderful. Um, so you are the budget expert for this show. You're the first time. You're actually the first person we've brought on to talk about the budget, and part of that is because we're in a budget session. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about what the budget is, what your work around the budget is, and why we should be paying attention to the budget? Uh, yes, definitely. So, so yeah, this is this is a budget year. Um, we're setting the budget for the next biennium. Um, Minnesota works on a two-year schedule, so we're setting the budget for the next two fiscal years. Um, and the budget, you know, uh, this is you know kind of the pot of money that uh, from the state that funds our schools and makes decisions on you know who has and how we have access to affordable health care, it creates funding for grants, for businesses, um, you know, it really funds a lot of uh, the things that I think we all find important in our communities. Um, 
And, you know, and when we think about the budget, it's also um, a pretty big pot of resources that we're looking at. So, you know, last biennium, um, our, the state's budget was, you know, about $50 billion. Um, and, um, you know, that's, that's, that's a lot of money that's going into our communities and schools and, and all those things. Wonderful. So why don't we start with the news last week that we have a surplus, but I know we spoke after in community, and I guess that surplus is not really as good as it sounds. Can you tell us a little bit about what's going on? Yes. So, so last week, um, the you know uh, the February forecast came out, and uh, that that's basically the thing that tells us you know how our state economy is, our national economy is looking, and how our state budget is looking, and that did show a surplus. So it showed. Um, that we have a $1.6 billion uh, positive balance for the next biennium. Um, and, that's, and that's good news. Um, but it, I said, it's definitely not as good as we'd like it to be. Um, so one thing to remember is that that forecast does not uh, include the cost for inflation and spending. So um, to the extent that we want to keep um, our current public services uh, we want those services to keep up with the cost it takes to provide them. Um, that positive balance actually shrinks to about $530 million. Um, and so when you think about within the context of the budget, that becomes a lot smaller. Um, another thing uh, that's, you know, that's something to think about is uh, a lot of that, that money is um, not ongoing money. So, you know, we have, we have a big pot of money right now. Um, but that that doesn't extend into the future, so it's going to be really important for policymakers to be thinking about um, the resources that we need to fund those ongoing investments. Um, and three, that forecast number, when we look at that surplus, we know that our current budget, our current law, isn't meeting everyone's needs, um, and so that's one of the surplus um, that actually uh, is measuring. Um, it's, you know, it's it's not a surplus about but what what we need. Um, we know that there's still a gap. I think that's a really good point when we talk about, um, and we'll talk about it in a few minutes. Kind of the implications and the importance of the budget to our to our most marginalized communities and to those of us who, you know, need more from, you know, need a different kind of policy making. I think, but as we move into this conversation, I mean, how do you, like, why does the budget, I mean, you mentioned that this is kind of how we fund government, but why does understanding the budget matter to the work that we do day in and day out as organizers, as community members? Yeah, so, you know, I think you know, at a high level, the budget is really a picture of, of what and who we value as a state. But when we look at it on the ground, you know, I think it has real, it, it has real implications. It, it means that you know, nonprofits doing good work uh, get funded. It, it means that we're actually making investments that um, for, for kids in schools can get the things they need to, to thrive. It means that um, people are getting the health care, the, the child care, the, you know, the food assistance um, that, that, we all, that we all need um, to, to make sure that we um, can support people's well-being. In terms of racial justice and in terms of social justice, and I should say for transparency, you know, 
that both Clark and I serve on um, as representatives of our work on a racial justice and equity coalition. What does the budget mean for racial justice? Why is it, um, what does this budget mean for racial justice, but also what does the budget mean? So, so as I was saying, you know, the budget is, you know, this big pot of money that funds our schools, but we're also making decisions on who gets funded and where we're funding things. Um, so I think about the budget as, as a tool, um, you know, that we can keep kind of making the, the status quo decisions or we can actually put money um, and invest more money in specifically, you know, BIPOC communities, BIPOC businesses, um, it's it's making those like very specific decisions in the budget. Um, and thinking about this, I, I'm thinking about this budget and this time that we're in. Um, you know, I think Minnesota is a state of abundance. We have a lot of resources that we can draw on, um, but we know that you know the path to a stronger, more equitable recovery, um, economic recovery, is through the in, in greater investment in health, well-being, and economic stability. Um, for BIPOC and all Minnesotans. So, so this budget just feels like a really key point in time for us to um, uh, be engaging and make some policy changes. Um, absolutely. I think there's, you know, I've learned so much from the budget, on the budget from you over the last couple of years of getting to listen to you speak about it. And I think for me, I mean, I've been reporting on the budget for years, but it's, I think now that I'm working, now that I'm understanding the budget more, I'm seeing just how, how it's not um, just this big government decision that impacts our lives. It really is, you know, the day-to-day -day things are getting impacted by budget decisions. Absolutely. You know, um, I'm thinking about like access to libraries and school and school lunch and all the ways in which our districts have mm -hmm. the resources they need or not because of the state budget. Um, is there anything else you think people need to know about the budget that I haven't asked you yet? And I know I've shown you a couple of doozies that, uh, you know, uh, that we hadn't discussed before, so I'm sorry. No, that's, that's, that's fine. Um, no, I think that, you know, well, I think maybe, <clears throat> I don't know if it's helpful to think about the budget timeline, but that, um, you know, with this, uh, surplus that was projected last week. Um, we're looking to, we'll see an updated budget proposal from the governor in a few weeks. Um, expecting to see that, I think, by March 19th. So um, we'll see what in um, what investments that governor's proposing uh, with those with those new dollars. Um, and then, you know, the legislature is also um, putting together their budget um, by by early April. So, um, you know, I think a lot is going to happen in the next month. Um, so stay tuned. Get involved. Absolutely. And I'll post some resources on the budget online for where the story is posted. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. This was really wonderful and such a great, like, introduction to the budget, sort of budget 101 piece. Um, on this show, we try and really talk about things from a racial and social justice perspective. And I think applying that to the budget and thinking about how important it is in our lives is so crucial to understanding the decisions that are getting made around housing and job security and rent stability and all of the other conversations that we're having as a community.
Absolutely. I just kept nodding my head to everything you said. Which is what I'm usually doing when you're when you're speaking. So we're we're in good company. <laughs> awesome. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us online. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks to Clark for joining us on air for that pre-recorded segment. Up next, we have Julia Freeman, Director of Community Engagement and Education Organizer with Voices for Racial Justice. Hi, Julia. Welcome to the Radical News Radio Hour. How are you doing today? I'm great. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us on air today. We're just so excited to have you here. Thanks for inviting me. Um, thank you. So why don't we start with introductions? Uh, some people may not know, know you, so who are you? What kind of work do you do? Thank you. I am the Director of Community Engagement at Voices for Racial Justice, and I lead mostly the education work at Voices, but I'm also a circle leader, a trainer, facilitator, and um, all around whatever is needed for the organization. And I've been there since 2007. And that's actually, I met you because I went through training at OAP way back then, back when it was OAP. Yes, you are alumni. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so t- t- tell us a little bit about the education organizing that you do. I know that you have, it comes in many different forms, and there's even a parent cohort. Yes. So actually, back in 2007, when I joined at that time, which was OAP, we had just formed a collaborative. It's called the Education Equity Organizing Collaborative. And it was with uh, multiple organizations with bases of parents and youth of color. And um, at that time, we were working mostly in Minneapolis. Minneapolis had a $35 million referendum that they were trying to get passed. And they came to the collaborative because they knew we were connected to a basis of color. And their survey had showed that the um, in 2008, when the, the referendum was going to be on the ballot, that parents of color were not going to vote for it. And um, they wanted us pretty much to deliver a referendum. And uh, we said, first of all, we have to do a race equity impact analysis on the referendum to see if it will be beneficial the goals that were in the referendum to see if they would be beneficial. And what it showed was it will pretty much uh, widen the disparities. But still that wasn't enough for the parents. The parents said they wanted to have a say in what was going on with the goals in the referendum. And if they could have a opportunity to sit down with Minneapolis Public Schools in a real deep way, in deep learning, shared learning efforts, that they would um, vote for the referendum and they would tell their bases to do so as well. And that's what happened. We delivered the referendum and um, sat down with um, Minneapolis. And in the process, Minneapolis had decided to do changing school options. That's whether they were going to change boundary lines, they were going to uh, close schools and everything. And um, when basically collaborative heard about it, they were like, oh, no, <laughs> you all have to actually do a race equity impact analysis. Now, race equity impact analysis 
puts a uh, racial lens on what the impact is going to have on BIPOC students. And uh, what it did was it opened up the door, for instance, like Little Little Earth and other um, indigenous communities, um, which was less than 6% of the district, was going to be impacted 26%. And it was going to cut off a several pathway for Somali students and African-American students with a cut off a pathway to South and uh, South and Southwest. So it was not good for communities of color. And so when they did the referendum, we asked them to do it over and over again. And then finally the school board agreed that the administration had to do the, do the, um, that referendum, I mean, the um, impact analysis. And they did it. And it was great because we knew how these communities were going to be impacted and they were, able to co-create solutions to what was going to impact them. So that was my red carpet, you should say, Serene, to, I could say, Serene, to education equity um, working in Minneapolis. And from that experience, we realized as a collaborative we needed a deeper tool for systems to um, actually understand what is the progress, because it's actually it's a it's, it's, it's a progression. It is a journey. It is a process. To education equity, and so we created the, uh, along with uh, over 5,000 voices, parents, youth, educators, um, and support staff, all of that, um, and, or, and, organ, organ, or, and organizers who have been organizing for a long time in education. We created this tool, and it is House That Voices, and it is on our website, and it's called the Progress Towards Education Equity. And this tool has eight goals. It's very colorful if you see it on, 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 on uh, the website. It's very colorful, and I have to give a shout-out to the students because it was very tech-heavy, and they helped in, in the color and wanted it designed, you know, where it would be appealing not only to students but also uh, the community and also systems. So shout-out to students. Um, and it has eight goals, and also it has uh, measures, and it has how you have to have a data checklist. And, and what I really love is parents sit a lot of times in Serene in these uh, meetings with education ease talk, and they sit there and they don't say anything because they're really not understanding it. And uh, systems people are not uh, mindful that because people don't work in your walk in your world might not understand these terms. And so there's a, a tool in the um, embedded in the tool called Key Terms, and that term is um, is it breaks down the education needs that they would hear normally in settings like even if in meetings or if they go to conferences or meet with principals or superintendents, they they have a breakdown of those words. And you mentioned a parent cohort. So as we um, did, we piloted this tool in four districts: uh, Deer River. Minneapolis District, St. Paul District, and Robbinsville District, and had some amazing success. Uh, youth in St. Paul, um, up in Deer River, they really worked with the indigenous community, increased their engagement with them, and, and Robbinsville never had a strong parent of color group ever before in the history of Robbinsville, and they did, and they were able to get AP in every um, junior junior high school. Um, and that was something that they had really wanted. 
and in um uh in, in Minneapolis uh, among uh, uh, International Academy where we had uh, piloted the school, the kids were able to do some amazing work around school climate. And like I said, St. Paul, the youth were able to um, actually talk about at uh, Harding High School the importance of equity and also the importance of uh, uh, history being and, and ethnic studies being taught. In, in the school and the principal uh, who was there at the school at the time actually just embraced the kids and pretty much whatever they, they they wanted and needed to do, which was great. But that work was not sustainable because kids and parents move on. And so what we realized is it needs to be more systemically uh, based and institutionalized is that it stays. And um, we actually began to work more deeply with uh, Minneapolis around the um, EDIA, which is the Equity Diversity Impact Assessment Tool, which is what we lovingly call the Race Equity Impact Assessment. And that tool now is embedded, institutionalized in Minneapolis, where all policies that are over $100,000 and um, Impact Student Learning receives the EDIA. And now there's also an EDIA committee and a staff, and one of the equity practices we uh, make sure that is honored is that there's leadership from the top. And so the superintendent actually oversees it along with his chiefs and, and whatnot and department heads on down. Everyone is familiar with the tool, and the tool is uh, widely used. And then which was which is amazing, but also on the organizing side, how do you continue to build the leadership of parents and youth? And so we did, we um, did a huge um, took about a year and did a talking to parents and talking to youth about what was needed. And a lot of them said they needed to increase their leadership, you know, ability around and have tools and language to organize. And, and, and engage other parents because when the leaders move on, that that knowledge goes with them. And so the parent cohort was birthed. We're in our third year. It is the Education Equity Parent Fellowship. And the fellows actually uh, learn and share and learn because you don't come in not knowing anything. It's a shared learn, learn safe space. It's BIPOC only. And this space mirrors the school year for 10, uh, 10 months. And and at the end of the uh, the 10 months, they receive the curriculum that they've learned. They also have to put it in practice as you go, as they go because these, these tools are supposed to be used. So, you know, Serene, if you give someone a hammer and they never hammer a nail, what's the purpose of the hammer, right? So it's important for them to use the tools. So they use the tools at ongoing. And also we um, respect the knowledge that parents, their experience, their history, and um, their, their students, you know, their kids' first learners that they bring into the room. So we actually pay our parents a small little stipend of $1,000, but they receive over $5,000 plus in training and curriculum. That is incredible. I the the depth of work that 
Voices does around education, I think, cannot be ignored. Um, I just think that it's an incredible amount of, like, effort and intention and strategy. As we head into, so we're now in a, a legislative session. It has been a very weird year for schools, students, parents, teachers. Um, what's on your mind right now as, you know, policy is talked about as people move into kind of new decision-making around education? Yes. You know that the parents also are connected to legislation. This is legislation that the parents have always said that they, they wanted and also used. So we have ethnic studies that um, – Ethnic Studies Coalition that we are part of has um, been very intentional about engaging NDE around some recommendations around the social studies standards and what we think that can happen and, and partnering. And we are hoping very, very strongly that they do the right thing. We are excited that the Governor has put some of the things that we want in his uh, uh, bill, but I'm concerned around education because a lot of education stuff that ends up in the governor's bill and in other um, places end up being negotiated away. So I'm cautiously optimistic. So from history has, has taught me that for BIPOC uh, students, a lot of the, the things that we get excited about and that we fight for like teachers of color, you know, that's something that's also in the bill. And then we also have um, um, stuff that man, uh, uh, measures, because we're also part of the Increased Teachers of uh, Color and American Indian Teachers Coalition. And and there's stuff that would be amazing um, for that, but then there's also um, things that are for solutions, not suspensions, which is another coalition we're part of. And the parents support all of this legislation. So, you know, they would testify, they would do action alerts, all of the stuff, because it's very important to them because they see it as something that is going to be very impactful for their kids to see some students, you know, a teacher that looks like the students and to actually be able to hear their history and their 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 um, culture taught in schools and to be able to have the kids be in a safe space where they don't have to worry about getting kicked out of class every day and have that anxiety, and also mental health support. So, like, the solutions on suspension had some amazing stuff. With You know, we're trying to prevent the, the suspension and expulsions for K, uh, pre-K to third grade, you know. I know everyone says to me, Serene, they're kicking out kids that young yet. Yes, they are. So we are we work hard out here, um, not only just Voices for Race and Justice, but all of our education partners. You know, we're we're tracking the stimulus money, the money that they're they're receiving for education and and how it's spent. And we sent some recommendations on how that can be spent. And um, so we're cautiously optimistic. But what has has shown us um, several times a lot of our recommendations that we put forth. Uh, something is put out publicly that doesn't name those recommendations or ignore those, ignore those recommendations or vaguely commit to those recommendations. So what's on my heart and what's on my mind is it's time for 
you know, a change. Minnesota has said around, especially around racial justice and for uh, BIPOC communities, there's times to change. And I think that change should be legislated and the change should be committed to from the uh, leadership at the top is the equity practice from the governor to all the legislators to actually do the right thing for uh, BIPOC Minnesotans. Um, it's really interesting that you brought up the children being suspended under third grade because that is actually legislation being discussed in the House next week. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yep. Yeah. Um, and so, so what is yeah. your vision for education? What What do you want five years from, to look like from now, ten years? Well, my vision is, and it has always been, and this is what gets me out of bed every morning to do this work, is I envision that the education outcomes for children and the success in education for children is not based on the color of their skin, right? So you can't see a, 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 a black child and know that they're going to have uh, uh, be eight times more likely to be suspended or um, graduation rates are going to be extremely low for um, African-American and indigenous and Latinx boys, right? So you want to be able to – my vision is that the, your education is – students' education is not tied to the color of their skin, that the equity has been um, – and this is what people need to know about equity. When we're talking about equity, we're some people think that we're talking about getting having more than white kids. We're, no, we're, I get emotional about this. We're talking about parity, you know, because all white kids aren't there either. They're like 77%, right? We are, we're talking about if we could just get our kids of color to 77% with white kids to have parity, right, where they get everything they need to get to that point because it should not be so uneven. And it is so uneven in the state for uh, BIPOC students. And so that's my vision. Um, I get when you – just that number, 77%, and the fact that, like, we know that our BIPOC kids are well behind that. And then just think about the fact that the system only I, – I'm sorry, my brain is just mind-boggled by that disparity and also just the fact that, like, we're not even any – we're close systemically to getting kids to 100%. Let alone, sorry, my brain is a little bit – mind-boggled by, by by that data. Um, I'm going to have to sit with yeah. it for a minute. Um, and it's in the data. And I have to just interject. It's in the data, Celine, and the data is tied to living, breathing students. I was just saying this yesterday in an interview yesterday about the state of black students in Minneapolis. There's 2,204 black Minneapolis teachers and over 2,300 white teachers. And black students are the second population, largest population right up under white students. And and then when you look at the discipline data of how these students, black students are kicked out of class and disciplined all the time, you could see it's because they have no one that looks like them, no one that, you know, desires their to 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 see them for who they are or um, understands their culture, and so it's in the data. So the so, so the the data doesn't lie. 
And we're not asking for my my colleague, um, Monica Marie Hurtado. She always said, we're not asking for charity. We're just asking for opportunity. Yeah, yeah. Um, So how can we best, how can we support you? How can we support the work of Voices? How can we support the education equity work that's happening, um, you know, in coalition with Voices? Well, one is in the stories, okay? It's it's people, those who make the decisions that impact your children need to hear from you. You can contact um, Voices or many of the the uh, partners in the coalitions that I, I mentioned, the, the Ethnic Studies Coalition, Solutions Not Suspension Coalition, the Increased Teachers of Color Coalition. You, we're, we're always looking for parents and youth to tell their story. But we also, and, we, and we're talking about BIPOC parents and youth, but we also need our white allies to also say that this is not okay because it's not okay. This is not okay, and this will benefit my child as a white parent to get them ready for a global education, to be around multiple different ethnicities and different races and have those um, them sitting next to those students but also have teachers that are globally in front of the room. So call your legislator, call the governor, you know, send an email, that kind of thing. So this, when this legislation is coming up, you know, speak to it. Thank you so much for joining us on air today. Is there anything, any last thoughts that you'd like to share? I'd like to say thank you um, for doing this because it's, it's important to get these multiple messages out, and I've enjoyed, you know, hearing uh, the many guests that you have on and how committed you are to actually bringing this, this information to the public. So thank you for that. I'm just glad to be able to do it. Thanks to Julia for joining us for that segment. Well, that's all we'll have time for today, folks. Just a reminder that you can find the Radical News Radio Hour on Facebook. You can find me on Twitter at CMiriam. And you can listen to previously aired episodes of this show and all of our episodes on Spotify, Google Podcasts, amongst many other podcast sites, as well as on our website, www.journalismofcolor.com, where you can also find a transcript of this episode. You can also reach our show at radicalnewsradiohour at gmail.com with tips, recommendations, and any questions. For now, thank you all for joining us for this episode. Just a reminder that you're listening to WFNU, LP, St. Paul, Frogtown, Community Radio, 94.1 FM. Thank you for listening. Stay safe, stay healthy, and mask up.